Father, thank you for the chance to study. It's never the case that I would start, Father, without thanking you for the chance to study. In my travels, Father, in my time with others in teaching, I'm always reminded of how precious it is to be in your word. How many times have I heard, Father, from people in churches around the world that they long for teaching and they don't receive it. And they desire to know the depths of your word and they, they can't find an opportunity to do that. And yet they're so thankful when, when that opportunity comes their way. And here we sit, Father, on a regular basis with that opportunity to study and to teach and to learn. May we never grow tired of it. May we never take it for granted. May we never see it as merely an option in our day, but rather, Father, the very food, the very bread of life. I thank you, Father, for it and all that it teaches, all that it holds, all that it can do in changing who we are and changing our thinking and our our lives. Father, I pray that we would be worthy of it in the way that we respond. Let us take seriously all that you show us in your word tonight. Let us consider it personally and corporately. Let it be the cause for different thoughts, different actions, and a different life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have covered the nine plagues of the judgments. Remember, nine was the number of judgment in Scripture. And tonight we turn to the tenth, the most important of those plagues, the plague of testimony, ten being the number of testimony. Chapter 11 will be where we start, and chapter 11 provides a description of the plague, of this tenth plague, that's much in the same manner as the way the earlier plagues were set up. But the tenth plague is intended to stand apart from the rest, and so it doesn't follow all those patterns that we were observing in the first nine. It, doesn't, it has a pattern of its own, and which is really to say it's, it's not patterned, it's unique. There's a real distinct pattern here. We've gone through this pattern watching how the the plagues built. That pattern was God's way of communicating that nothing was happening by chance. These things were part of a structure or part of a story, part of a message, and we've been examining that. And likewise, the tenth plague, though it doesn't follow this pattern, it has its own structure and therefore has its own message. And it is set apart from the other nine because the message of the first nine is fundamentally different than the message of the tenth. Though they are all working together, for a common outcome that God prescribed from the very beginning. His manner is part of the story. I I can make a a quick comparison for you in the way God works through patterns or processes to communicate. When I point your attention back to the creation story, that the creation takes place over six days. I've always found it humorous that some would have doubts about the veracity of that story, and their doubts come principally from the thinking that it is too short a time to expect all of the creation to come into being. And I've always responded by saying, well, we know God could create in an instant should he choose to do so. So the real question we ought to ask ourselves is, why did he take so long? And it's in the time that he took that the message becomes evident, that his structure, the days and the way those days play out, contains in it an embedded structure, therefore an embedded message, coded, if you will. And as you learn what the message is, you learn the purpose of creation. You learn many other things that are theologically important. Well, you have a very similar opportunity here. We've done that with the nine. We learned that these were designed to show God's power, his prominence, his sovereignty, his superiority over the creation and over false gods and so on. And there will be tonight a very important story embedded in the 10th plague. What follows in chapter 11 is a brief description of what is coming in chapter 12. And the Lord gives Moses in the course of this description new instructions centered around the 10th plague and its meaning for Israel and Israel's expectations for honoring this plague or the memory of this plague, this judgment in the future. We call it the Passover. So we'll go first to the introductory chapter, chapter 11, beginning in verse one. Now, the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So chapter 11 
begins this introduction, but it does it in a very artful way. It is both a continuation of the meeting that started in chapter 10, and it is an introduction for what is to come next. So it bridges chapters 10 and chapters 12. You remember in chapter 10, we heard Pharaoh meeting with Moses that final time, and the Pharaoh was so disgusted, he said to Moses, I never want to see your face again. If I see you again, you will die. Moses in that moment says, I agree, you're right, you will never see me again, and he leaves in a huff. But before Moses departs from the presence of Pharaoh, he delivers the message to Pharaoh concerning the 10th plague. Now, we did not see that in chapter 10 because Moses is waiting to describe that moment in chapters 11 and 12. But it is all one scene. What we're studying now and what we're going to study tonight all the way into chapter 12 is part of what that happened in that original meeting back in chapter 10. This is not a new meeting. This is the same meeting. We're just getting additional information concerning that final encounter. And so chapter 11 now is setting up that plague by reminding us of what happened in that meeting. First, the Lord had informed Moses of the 10th and final plague prior to Moses going before Pharaoh on that ninth, on that last occasion. All of what God is saying here had been already delivered to Moses. How do we know that? Well, because Moses is going to deliver it to Pharaoh in that encounter. So it had to be the case that he already knew this. This judgment, God has told Moses, will be the last one, the one that frees Israel. In fact, the tenth is going to cause Egypt to drive Israel from the land, to insist that they leave. And in preparation for that moment, God directs Israel to be prepared to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of gold or silver. Now, that request must have sounded crazy to Moses At the time that he heard it, it must have sounded crazy to the Israelites when Moses repeated it to them, because at the time that he's stating this, of course, they are a people that has been hated for centuries, been enslaved for centuries, and are certainly no more loved now than they were before, given all of the plagues. But we're told in verse three that this request will not be so crazy after all, because the Lord will cause the Egyptians to esteem the people of Israel and Moses so much so that they will agree to this request. Now, what would cause them to have such esteem? Well, you'll see that as part of the 10th plague. Then moving forward, verse 4, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these, your servants, will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So Moses delivers this warning to Pharaoh regarding the final plague. He says the Lord will personally go out into the land of Egypt, causing all the firstborn in Egypt to die. The result of the Lord going out amongst all who are in Egypt is that both man and animal will die. And when we reach chapter 13 next week, We're going to learn why God chooses to take the lives of both men and animals. There's a reason why both are included. We find that out in chapter 13. When we hear firstborn here, we might be tempted to imagine this is a plague against children. But you have to remember, age is not a consideration in this judgment. So a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother who happens to be the firstborn of their father, and that's the test here, firstborn of their father, then they would also be dying in this judgment. So there would be deaths from every generation, both of man and of beast, throughout the nation of Israel. Even Pharaoh himself might have died, except that he wasn't the firstborn son of the III. Amenhotep II, who is the Pharaoh that we're talking about here, had an older brother born to a different mother. But before Tutmos, his father, the III, before his father died, his first wife and that firstborn son had both perished. And we don't know why. We don't know the history of it. There's no recording 
of what caused their death. But while Tutmos III was still alive, his oldest son and his wife both died. That caused him to take a second wife, and the son of the second wife was Amenhotep II. While he was the firstborn of his mother, he was not the firstborn of his father, and so he lived through the plague. The result of this judgment would be great grief beyond anything the nation has ever experienced thus far, we're told. Yet God would continue to show distinction between his people and those of Egypt. Now notice that God is working here to discriminate between nations, not between individuals. There is no attempt here to tie these judgments to the behavior of the individuals who are caught up in them, other than Pharaoh himself, of course. So God is judging one nation, Egypt, for the sake of another nation, Israel. And that's important because it's proof of a theological principle of Scripture when it comes to God's dealing with the nation of Israel. God's covenants are with the nation of Israel, and they operate on a national level as far as Israel is concerned, which is something we're going to see more of later, of course, when we look at the Old Covenant as it's inaugurated at the mountain. If you were here for the Revelation study, then you got a a good dose of this when we looked at how God is fulfilling those covenants in the time of tribulation. So while salvation is an individual issue based on faith in the heart, the covenants God has made with Israel are not salvitic covenants. They are covenants with regard to his relationship to the nation. And so as the nation goes, so goes each individual in the nation. At this moment, the nation is in slavery and he is at work to free the nation and another nation stands in the way. And so he's dealing with these nations. So having delivered the full word of the Lord to Pharaoh, as God instructed, Moses now leaves hot with anger. If you just want a reference, this is the same moment as is depicted in Exodus 10:29. Looking forward now from there, 11.9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. This chapter ends with a two-verse summary of all that has transpired leading into the tenth judgment. And that's why these two verses are here. Before Moses dives headlong into the 10th judgment, he simply summarizes what's come to this point. God set about to ensure that Pharaoh would not listen to Moses, and that was done so that God was ensured that all of his wonders would be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed the wonders as God instructed, and now, as the Lord has promised, he has hardened Pharaoh's heart to the point where a 10th and final plague will now come. And so now the Lord gives... In chapter 12, a series of instructions to Moses to prepare the nation of Israel for this 10th judgment, the judgment we call Passover. Verse one. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. By the nature of these instructions, it's going to become clear that the 10th plague is intended to carry special meaning for the nation of Israel, not just here and now, but forever after. The tenth plague will go by a name even. We call it the Passover. The word comes from the simple nature of the plague itself, the very characteristic of it, of God passing over the nation of Israel and not putting the plague on them. You'll see that later, of course, as we look at it. The first instruction concerning this unique plague, this Passover, concerns the Jewish calendar of all things. And this seems a little odd. It kind of comes out of the blue. It doesn't seem to fit into what we've been studying so far. Remember that the eighth plague destroyed the wheat. And we said at the time that that came up in early March. And the ninth plague that followed right after that was the plague of darkness. And it must have followed soon on the heels thereafter because now the tenth plague is set during this month that we know was late March, early April time frame. So we've moved from the 8th plague to the 10th plague in a relatively short period of time. The Bible calls this month by two different names. At the time of Moses, the Jews called this month Aviv, A-V-I-V. We'll see that later in chapter 13. The name means most literally fresh young ears, as in new stalks of grain, the ears of grain, fresh new ears. The month comes in early spring, this March-April time frame. It's a lunar calendar, so 
the exact days shift from year to year, but it's in this general time frame. And as the name suggests, it's tied to a new harvest, to the planting, in other words, of a new harvest. So it's got that name and it's got that time of year. After the nation of Israel went into captivity in Babylon, they began to use the Babylonian language to describe this month. So the same month, same time of year, stopped being called Aviv and started being called Nisan. And Nisan is the Babylonian name for exactly the same month. So in the Bible, you'll hear this month called Nisan or Nisan. You'll hear it called Aviv. Today it's called Nisan. That name has stuck ever since the Babylonians. Same month, just a different word from a different language. Prior to this moment, prior to this change in Exodus, Israel followed the same calendar that the Egyptians did and that for the most part, the rest of the ancient world did, as far as we know. And the ancient East calendar was a lunar calendar with 12 months, the first month of each year in the East, according to Egypt, according to the Eastern world, according to what Israel practiced while they lived in Egypt. The first month of the year occurred in the autumn time between September and October, just depending on the year again, it would shift around, but it was somewhere in that time frame. It was called Tishri. Still is called Tishri. God now is telling Israel at this point, as they're about to experience the Passover judgment, that they are to change their calendar so that no longer will Tishri be the first month of the year, but now Aviv, later to be called Nisan, will become the first month of the year. He's telling them this while they are in the month of Aviv. They are in that time of the year right now. And he's saying, take this month that we are in now and start calling it the first month of your year. In Israel today, they consider their new year to start in the month of Tishri, but they consider their religious year to start in the month of Aviv or Nisan. Why is that? Well, the Jews want to count the start of every new year in the month of Tishri because they claim to have counted every year since the creation of Adam, which they count back to that month. By their reckoning, we're currently in the year 5,773 from the date of Adam's creation. And they don't want to disrupt that count. So they still count the new year in terms of the count of the year in Tishri. But their religious new year as starting in Aviv. It would be as if we still considered every year to begin in January, but we didn't add another one to the year until July. The Jewish new year occurs in month number seven. And that's just for their reasons of continuing a count that had already started before and they didn't want it to get off by six months. But they think of their new year in terms of Aviv. They count it, though, on Rosh Hashanah, on the the new year of Tishri. And they've come to calling one their religious calendar and one their civic calendar. That's how they fit the two together. Now, why did God do this? What's the meaning of it, in other words? The answer is found by looking more closely at the Egyptian calendar at the calendar that the Egyptians used. The Egyptians attached great spiritual significance to each lunar period that represented each month of the year. And moreover, they attached that significance based on the astrological sign that is associated with each month. Throughout the year, the sun rises at the horizon under different constellations of the night sky. So when the sun is rising at a certain point on the horizon in a given month, it is aligned with a certain constellation in the sky. And throughout the year, it moves around. So the month of Tishri begins on the calendar somewhere in that September, October time frame when the sun enters the constellation Libra. Each new month then is marked by the arrival of a new constellation. So it begins with one and moves to the next. So the 12 astrological signs we have today come from the Egyptian occultic religious system. It's amazing that that's endured and is still used today. So if you read your horoscope, you are observing the same Egyptian calendar that existed in the day of Israel. That's how astrology works. I'm certainly not endorsing it, but for now I'm just explaining it. Each month then carried spiritual significance And the meaning was found in the constellation that was associated with that month. This was especially true for the first month of the year, because with the beginning of each year, there was a renewed commitment to the spiritual values of the Egyptian culture. You can think of it as the 12 signs teaching the theology of Egypt. 
collectively, they formed Egyptian theology. So what was the meaning of the first month? Well, the first month of Tishri is associated with Libra. The word Libra means scales or weights. And the constellation itself is seen to resemble a a set of scales or weights. Egyptians attached to this sign a theology. They believed that this sign taught that the gods would weigh a man's deeds upon his death and assess his entry into the afterlife based on the weight of his deeds. If a man's deeds could not tip the scales in his favor, then he would not pass the test of the gods and he would not enter into a pleasurable afterlife. If he could tip the scales, then he would enter into their equivalent of heaven. So Egyptians began every calendar year with a month that reminded them to recommit to a year of good deeds. We still see people today who follow a similar mindset. We call it New Year's resolutions. While Israel did not share in the Egyptians' religious views, it did use the Egyptian calendar, as did the rest of the Eastern world. So until the Exodus, Tishri was the first month of the year for Israel as well. But God changed the first month to Aviv, and the Jews now have a month that is represented by the sign of Aries. Now, what is the meaning of this? Well, Aviv, it's Aries, the constellation Aries, and it resembles a ram, a substitute sacrifice. Instead of deeds being weighed as your principal theological starting point, it's now a substitute sacrifice being the principal start of the year according to God's economy. God is at work doing something here much bigger than merely freeing Israel in this particular day. He is orchestrating a series of events that will live on in memorial, but each detail carries significance in teaching something. So as we go into the rest of this chapter tonight, the bulk of it anyway, our focus now is going to be twofold. Our focus is going to be looking at the instructions of the Passover that God gave to Israel. But we're also going to try to find all the ways in which these details speak to a picture of Christ. And I'm sure I'm not giving anything away to this audience by announcing up front that the Passover is a picture of Christ. But it's a picture of Christ probably in more ways than we've seen or may have seen in our study. There is a tremendous amount of of detail here. And the detail all relates to Christ. And even in the year itself, that picture is already being presented, this change of calendar. The Passover is, without a doubt, the clearest picture of Christ found in all of the Old Testament. The Passover is the feast most often mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, even goes so far as to call Jesus our Passover. So the association could not be clearer, could not be stronger, and the importance and the uniqueness of the Passover is reflected in all of the detail and in all of the prominence. We really can't overstate how important the Passover is. You could say Jesus isn't just pictured by the Passover feast. He actually is its fulfillment. In fact, we know Jesus dies on the day of Passover. So let's go to now the details. We'll study this in sections. With each section, as I said, we'll step out and look at both what is being asked and what it means. And then secondly, how it pictures Christ. So let's go to verse three. He says, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, They are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. On the 10th day of Aviv, each family in the nation is going to take a lamb or goat into their father's house. Smaller families are to combine so that they would then create a single family unit. And the purpose in the combining was to ensure that the feast was celebrated corporately that it was celebrated corporately. The original Passover event was a corporate event. It was a national event, one that affected the whole nation of Israel. The nation suffered in slavery as a single nation, and it's going to earn its freedom as a single nation. And if a family were only, let's say, two or three persons, 
that sense of corporate involvement would be lost. It would seem like a personal or an individual event. And the Passover is ultimately not about individuals. It is ultimately about a collective group being covered by a sacrifice. So according to verse 4, the smaller families were to continue combining until there were enough in a family unit that they could then consume the lamb and ensure it was gone when they were done. That was sort of the standard of how big you needed to have your family to be. The sacrifice itself had to be selected and kept in a certain way. According to verse 5, they could select either a lamb or a goat, but it had to be a male. It had to be unblemished. And blemish here means any defect to the health or the appearance of the animal. Only lambs that appeared to be perfect could be sacrificed. It had to be a year old. Now, a lamb reaches adulthood by year one, so it would mean an adult animal, but in the prime of life. Finally, the lamb is brought into the father's household on the tenth day of Aviv. And then the lamb remains in the home until the day of sacrifice. And the day of the sacrifice was to be four days later on the 14th of Aviv. Then in verse 6, it says that all Israel on that day is to collectively sacrifice their lambs at twilight. That's an unfortunate translation into English. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of your Bibles say a different word. Because in Hebrew, it literally reads like this. They are to sacrifice it between the two evenings. Between the two evenings. Now, Jews understood this phrase historically to refer to the period between noon and nightfall. Noon and nightfall. Noon was considered the first evening in the way they saw the word. And then nightfall was the second evening of a day. Now, it's a bit of a turn of phrase or a euphemism on their part. Really, it's their way of saying the afternoon. Afternoon. So the word is not twilight. It's really between the two evenings, which is a way of saying in the afternoon. So the timing for the killing of the lambs in Israel must take place between 12 o'clock and 6 p.m., 6 p.m. being considered the hour of nightfall generally. In Jesus' day, Josephus tells us, when he reports on the practice of Passover in his day, Josephus tells us that the Pharisees had customarily chosen to kill the national sacrificial lamb at precisely 3 p.m. because 3 p.m. was exactly between the two evenings, so to speak. Between noon and 6 p.m. So 3 p.m. became the appointed time because it most clearly fulfilled the requirements of the two evenings. So how do these details contribute to the pictures of Christ? Let's go back through that list again. To understand the connection, we have to jump forward to the final week of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels. On the 10th day of Aviv, he entered the city on a donkey and he promptly went directly, we're told, to the temple court. John tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, this is John 2. This is early in his ministry. I used this one only because this is a more complete description, which I wanted to borrow from. But the same pattern is in both cases. It's the same event, right? Passover at an earlier year versus Passover in the year that he died. But look, as it says, he entered the temple, got mad at the corruption, of course, in righteous anger. And he famously runs the money changers out of the temple. Jesus, who is our Passover, Paul says, calls the temple what? His father's house. So we noted a moment ago that the lamb must be taken and placed in the father's house on the tenth of Aviv. And like the good Passover lamb that he was, Jesus enters his father's house on the tenth day of Aviv. Secondly, Passover was a corporate celebration, one that reminded the Jews of their collective exodus from slavery. And similarly... Jesus was a single sacrifice for all the sins of the people. Jesus was offered to the nation as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the people of Israel. Just as the nation was to come together and observe the Passover together, the nation as a whole was required to accept the sacrifice of the Messiah as a nation. 
So the whole nation had to accept Jesus as their Messiah if they were to receive what he came to offer. Either the entire nation would embrace their Messiah or collectively they were considered to have rejected him. And as we know, the nation rejected their Messiah. And so they collectively remain in bondage to sin. It was as if they rejected the Passover lamb sacrificed for their sake. Thirdly, the sacrifice itself had requirements. We've already heard it had to be an adult male in the prime of life without blemish. Jesus fits this description perfectly. We know that he was male. And of course, at the strongest point in the life of an adult male, his early 30s. But we also know he was without blemish. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him, God the Father made the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. While the lamb was living in the father's house for those four days, the family would spend those four days inspecting the lamb for defects in keeping with the instructions to only have a blemish-free lamb. If a defect was discovered, the lamb would not be suitable for the sacrifice and the family would not be able to use that lamb for the sacrifice. That same pattern repeated itself in the case of Jesus. As Jesus entered the temple... We're told he began to teach the people in the temple courts. And as he taught, the religious leaders in Jerusalem conspired against him. And they sent in groups of representatives to try to discredit Jesus, find fault with him, and in that way cause him to be turned aside by the people, to be discredited in the eyes of the people. Luke reports it this way in Luke 19:47, And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. So each day Jesus spent in the temple leading up to the Passover. He was subjected to inspection by different groups of religious leaders in the nation of Israel. You see him getting visited by first the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Secondly, by the Herodians, and then lastly, by the Sadducees. Each group tries to trick Jesus with questions designed to make him look foolish. And in each case, he answers the charge successfully and turns the shame back on his accusers. This goes on for four days. And at the end of the fourth day, Jesus is found innocent and blameless and without blemish. And then that is the night he goes to his trial and then then to his execution as the Passover. Finally, Jesus was placed on the cross exactly four days later on the day of Passover, on the 14th of Aviv. He hung on the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning, Mark tells us. Mark also tells us that Jesus died exactly at 3 p.m., halfway between the two evenings, so to speak. He died at exactly the same moment, in fact, that the high priest of Israel would have been standing in the temple sacrificing the national Passover lamb that day, just yards from where he himself was sacrificing for the sins of men. There's never been such a useless animal sacrifice offered in all history as the lamb that was being killed as Jesus died. So Jesus fits the requirements perfectly as the lamb of God sacrificed for the Passover. And remember, we've already noted how the Exodus itself is a big picture. God freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt and bringing them to worship at a mountain ultimately bringing them into the promised land. All of that story pictures God's future work of freeing Israel from the bondage of sin and unbelief and lead them ultimately to Mount Zion to worship a different mountain, a better mountain, and into the true promised land. So the picture that's formed in Exodus reflects the greater realization that's yet to come in the time of tribulation. Think, how does God accomplish this work of redemption on behalf of Israel? It does not come as the result of judgments. Israel, in the time of the Exodus, was not set free because of the nine judgments. They were set free because of the tenth Passover. Similarly, Israel in tribulation will not be set free from their bondage of sin and brought into the faith that saves them because of the judgments of tribulation, but only by the sacrifice of Christ made real in their hearts by the pouring out of the Spirit. So in the Exodus, it was the sacrifice of a lamb in their home. And in the tribulation, it will be their embracing of the sacrifice of Christ that had been made for their sake on the cross. In both instances, 
that becomes the moment of their freeing. One physical, one spiritual. Now we move further. Verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner and your, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood of the lamb was to be applied to the doorway of each house. Now, the blood was applied. We will learn later in, in verse 22 it's applied with a hyssop branch. That is the same branch that was used to hold the sponge with the, the vinegar wine that Jesus drank from, by the way. The blood is applied to the top beam and the side beams of the doorway, but not to the threshold, the part that goes across the floor. And that's simply because the threshold can be tread upon and you aren't going to want to tread on the blood of the sacrifice. The blood, of course, represented the life of the animal, as has been the case throughout the scripture. God has called the blood the life in ever since the creation. And therefore, since the blood is poured out, it's symbolic of the life being poured out because, in fact, it takes the life of the animal as a consequence of it leaving the body. Following this, the animal then is to be roasted, we're told, by fire, not boiled, not prepared in any other way. It has to be cooked over fire and it's roasted whole head, legs still attached to the body. The alternative would be to take the legs off and to roast them separately, to cut the animal up into pieces, roasting the pieces. And then if you do that, all you're going to have on the table is a bunch of meat. Instead, this prescription was intended to result in the animal resembling an animal after it's cooked to stay in one piece. It wasn't to be separated into parts, but so that we could see that an animal had died and roasted in front of us. It was still intact in front of us. Furthermore, the entire animal had to be consumed or else what was left had to be burned. The sacrifice was to be totally consumed, totally, as if the animal had disappeared. In the day of the Exodus, this made sense because nothing could be left for a family that was about to go on the run. Leftovers aren't going to be helpful under the circumstances. So it was a reflection of their need to leave in haste that there would be no food left over. Of course, it carries a different meaning in memorial, but it had a practical meaning in the moment. Next, the people were told to eat the meal in a way that reflected their readiness to leave in haste. So they were dressed in a way that indicated they were ready to move on. This, this girding of the loins, which is such a classic biblical phrase, people say it and they immediately think of the Bible. It simply reflects the fact that people wore long robes. Long robes get in the way of walking fast unless you wrap them up around your waist and tie them like a, really like a diaper, tied up between your legs and that's girding your loins, as this phrase goes. Finally, the Lord tells Israel that the blood on the door will be their salvation when the judgment of death comes. But I want you to note, God says the blood is a sign. So the blood is not literally what is saving them, but it is a sign of what is saving them. So this becomes a sign. That's an important distinction because there is no suggestion in Scripture that by this literal blood, there was a literal salvation being applied, but it symbolized or was a sign of something that was saving them. By this observance, they are saved. And the Lord's intent is that on the going out into the land of Egypt and the bringing of death to the firstborn, if he comes to a home with the blood, he will pass over that home, not enter it, but pass over it. Israel will escape the judgment then through the application of the blood. Now, this is an interesting change from the past nine judgments, because in the past nine judgments, the nation of Israel either suffered with Egypt to some degree in the early ones, or they suffered none at all. But it was never dependent on their behavior, whether they did or whether they did not. But now they must apply this blood if they are to escape the judgment in the final judgment. Then it would come upon anyone in Israel who would fail to apply this instruction. Now, we can easily see how these details reflect Jesus. 
The Bible tells us that the blood of Christ is the atonement for our sin. And that's easy to find in Scripture. Let's just cite a couple of quick examples. First, John one seven, he says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. First Peter 1.18, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I love Peter's comment because he makes that sign comparison for us. He makes Jesus the comparison to the lamb of the Passover. If you wanted an in-depth teaching, Hebrews is probably your best place to go. And Hebrews has an extended discussion on the blood of Christ being better than the blood of bulls and goats and presented a acceptable sacrifice for the sins of those who are in Christ. The blood stands between us and the judgment that comes upon all men for sin, that judgment being the second death. So in the same way that the blood of the lamb covered the doorpost, and became opportunity to pass over the home, the blood of Christ is seen as covering us in the sense that, spiritually speaking, when God looks upon us, he sees the blood of Christ. And therefore, it does not bring judgment against us for our sin, but passes over us for that purpose. The difference in the case between the sign and the reality is that in the case of the sign, it was a temporary application that accomplished a temporary benefit. In the case of Jesus' blood, it is a permanent application that provides for a permanent change. Now, the blood itself, remember, does not save the family unless it was applied in the manner that God prescribed. Just because they had the animal, just because they killed it, just because they let the blood out and collected it in a bowl, they never took that last step of taking the blood and applying it to the door. None of that other stuff would have had any value to them. They had to apply it to the door. And the very act of applying the blood to the door was an act of faith. It was faith in God's word. His word or his promise being that if the blood is on the door, you will be spared. They knew God had been bringing judgments. They've seen those. They had heard he would be bringing this last one. And they had the faith in that word to apply the blood as prescribed so as to save themselves. The writer of Hebrews makes exactly this point. In Hebrews 11:28, he says, By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. So Moses acted by faith, by definition, in applying the blood. Now we have more instructions concerning the observance of the feast. Exodus 12:14. Now, this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your house, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So the Passover is commanded as a single day memorial on the 14th of every Aviv. They would do the Passover and that is a perpetual memorial, a single day's event. And this means we can expect to see this going on in the kingdom once Christ returns. The Passover day, in fact, may be the origin for the term day of the Lord. As you know from the Revelation class, that phrase occurs frequently, especially in the Old Testament prophets. Day of the Lord, day of the Lord. It references the period of tribulation, which we know is not a day, but is in fact a period of seven years. 
This is a time of judgment. Tribulation is a time of judgment, followed by a blessing for Israel. And we know, by the way, that is the ultimate fulfillment of the Exodus. It is conceivable that the Old Testament prophets saw that relationship, that the Passover itself was a picture of what will happen in the day of the Lord. The day of Passover is a day of judgment followed by blessings for Israel. Therefore, it may be that they started adopting the term day of the Lord to refer back to the day of Passover in its picturing of the tribulation. This event, we're now told, is to be combined with another memorial, a second memorial that begins on the very next day. So Passover is a day. Then on the very next day, another memorial is to take place, one that lasts seven days. So that the combination of the two is eight days. In fact, in the Gospels, there's a place in which you hear of the Feast of Unleavened Bread being used in place of saying Passover, because as an eight day event, they sort of blended together and became a single event for many of the Jews. They saw them as one big celebration for this second event, though, for the seven days of the unleavened bread feast. They are to eat only unleavened bread, as the name implies. Leaven is yeast. So we're talking here about bread that has not been raised with yeast. And the first day of the seven days begins with the house itself being cleared out of all leaven. So even though you weren't going to use it, you couldn't even keep it. So you had to remove it from your house for seven days. After this, no one could eat leavened bread. The penalty for eating leavened bread during that seven days was that you would be cut off. And the word in Hebrew implies killed. So the penalty for eating leavened bread was to be put to death. The first and the seventh day of the feasts are Sabbaths. So the first day is a Sabbath. The seventh day is a Sabbath. This seven day period is intended to commemorate the time between the killing of the firstborn of Israel, which happens on the 14th, which is the day of the Passover. And then for the next seven days, as we will study when we get to chapter 14, the nation of Israel was on the run, not just in the daytime, but literally day and night, they walked without sleeping to get away from the nation of Egypt. And of course, the only way you could do that is supernaturally God provided the strength to make that exodus. So in commemoration of the fact that they were moving for seven days, we have this feast. And of course, in the reality of what actually happened, they had no way to stop and make bread, much less let it rise. They had to eat off basically crackers while they walked. That's the unleavened bread that they carried with them. So that's the event that is now memorialized by this feast. These instructions continue this parallel between Exodus and Jesus. Let's look at how these things reflect Jesus. First, the Passover feast is a permanent ordinance never to end. And similarly, the sacrifice of Jesus as our Passover lamb is a forever sacrifice that never ceases to be effective in its atoning power over sin. Hebrews says it best, 727. Speaking of Jesus, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because this Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself. Unlike the priests of the temple that sacrificed constantly, Jesus does once for all. So having accepted the sacrifice of Christ, we now enter into new lives as Christians based on that sacrifice. And in this new walk that follows immediately after our salvation. So the day of our salvation is the day we accept the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Christ, that is the next day of our life is a day in which we are set on a new path, one that is calling us to set aside sin and to live a life that is set apart for the glory of God. We are called to a walk of sanctification, which is a fancy term for becoming more holy. And in that walk, we are told not to sin, but to pursue holiness. And in the Bible, yeast or leaven is always a picture of sin. So we are to remove the yeast or the leaven from our home, the temple of God, the, the body we have. So the seven days represents our life after our salvation in which we are to work to avoid sin. Paul says it this way in First Corinthians, First Corinthians five, six to the church. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He makes such a beautiful comparison. He uses the picture, right? 
So our walk with Christ in faith is a time when we are working to put aside sin. But the work of our life, this work of sanctification, of seeking to put aside the sin in our lives, this work is sandwiched between two days, single days in our walk with Christ. These two moments on either side of our walk are days in which we do no work. Just as in the days of the unleavened bread feast, we're surrounded by Sabbath on the first day and a Sabbath on the final day in which men did no work. What are these two days in which we do no work? Well, on the day of our salvation, we do no work at all, for our salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. Our salvation is only by the work of God. Similarly, at the end of our life in Christ, when we have that final step of redemption take place, that is when our body is replaced, we are glorified. That is a work entirely of God. We do nothing to achieve our glorification. And only in between are we at work in removing leaven. Romans 8.30, Paul says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He did all. He did, he did, he did, not us. So the two days of Sabbath God included so that we would have pictures of those two days in our walk in which he does all the work. Lastly, in the day of Israel's redemption, this pattern continues on a national level. The nation will be called to accept their sacrifice, that is Christ. Those who do so in faith will be given the right to enter the kingdom, but only the righteous can enter the kingdom. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And therefore, the one in Israel who is not free of leaven, so to speak, that is sin, will be cut off from the rest of Israel in keeping with his instructions. So not only did it apply on the individual level in the day of the feast, but on a national level, when the day of Jesus' appearing comes, those who have accepted that sacrifice and have been made holy by faith will be considered acceptable to God for the kingdom, and the rest of Israel will be cut off. They will be the goats who are separated. They will be the ones who will not enter into the kingdom. So with the instructions given and the memorial set, the time comes for the lamb to be sacrificed. The lamb has spent four days in the home of the Jewish family. So the 14th of Aviv has arrived and the lambs are killed and they're sacrificed. Verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land, which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people, to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. So the angel of the Lord goes through the land of Egypt, taking the life of the firstborn at midnight. Every house experiences death. What an amazing God providing that every home at least had a firstborn somewhere in the home. We're told the cries of Egypt were great that night and the Jews would have heard them. Not a single person died in Israel. 
God making that distinction. Now, Pharaoh loses his firstborn son. Now, the, the boy who dies here, his identity has been lost to history. But we do know that the successor to this child is Tutmos IV. And he, we know from history he was not the firstborn son of his father. In fact, he invented a story about how the Sphinx had appeared to him in a dream and told him that he would be king if he cleared the sand that covered the Sphinx in that day. And it was a cover story that he had created so that he could gain acceptance among the people as Pharaoh since he was not the firstborn son and not the normal heir. And, of course, he did have an army of people clear the Sphinx of sand, and that's how the story gave him legitimacy. With this final plague, of course, the Pharaoh relents. We knew this was coming, and he makes no attempts to even compromise. But we also know that God is not hardening his heart at this point, and that's what allows the effect to work. This death leaves him with no fight left. He orders Moses and Aaron to leave. Notice he calls them in the middle of the night. There's no waiting. Go now. And the people of Egypt urge the Jews to leave. They're asking them to go. This is in keeping with what God said would happen. They fear they'll all be dead. And so now this opportunity, combined with the pressure from the people, has created the need to leave in haste. Notice that? Taking your time is simply not an option. I find this interesting because the whole time the story has been focused on trying to get an opportunity to leave, but in the way God orchestrates it now, Israel can't dawdle either. They have to leave quickly, even if they might have preferred to go more slowly. So when God turns the tap, he makes it a rush to get out. This begins that seven-day journey into the wilderness in which they will have no time to eat, leaven bread. They won't even have time to stop. The last section for the night. 1235. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So as the Egyptians urged the Jews to leave, they remember what Moses told them to do. And they asked, they said, can we have all your articles of gold and silver? And the people of Egypt were so desperate for Israel to leave at this point, they gladly gave them whatever they wanted just to see them leave. And in that way, we're, we're told they plunder the Egyptians. So after centuries of working for free as slaves, the nation leaves rich at the expense of the Egyptians. They get, they get paid for all that work. The wealth they collect here is used by God to outfit the first tabernacle. So there's a great preaching opportunity here that I won't bother with tonight that simply makes the point that the wealth we do have as a result of God's blessing in our lives is ultimately not to our own glory. It's ultimately a tool he will then turn to use for his own glory again later in some fashion, or that should be our perspective on our wealth anyway. We're told here 600,000 men are in the company of Israel, not counting children, but it's implied also, of course, that we're not counting women. So if you take out the women and the children, but you have 600 men, then just a rough count based on that leaves you with at least 2 million people leaving at this point. So if you just had men and women and no babies, you still have 1.2 million. So there's clearly going to be somewhere close to 2 million. Some have estimated even higher. That's a huge army of people moving through a desert with a huge number of livestock to go with it and all carts of gold and silver, etc., etc. They travel from Ramses, which is where they had been living and working in Ramses, building, as you remember, we already heard they had been put in Ramses. And they moved southeast a relatively short distance to Succoth, that's where we'll leave them tonight. They're in harsh circumstances with no provision whatsoever, except these crackers, if you want to think of them that way. And they are now just one step into the Sinai Peninsula. So the story of chapter 12 is pausing there at the point where Israel is about to leave Egypt. Next week, we're going to look as they leave and go the distance from there to the point of the crossing of the Red Sea. They'll make this distance in a total of Seven days. I'm not going to show you on the map where that is because it gives away the crossing of the Red Sea. We're going to look at that, as I mentioned, the week after that. That's where we'll stop. So let's go to prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the wisdom, for the marvelous way in which you weave together all these details so many centuries before they came to pass in the life of Christ and even more centuries before they came to light in our hearts. What kind of God, Father, can 
orchestrate so many details across so much history so that they fit so perfectly in this way. Only you could, Father, only the God that created all things. Let these details reaffirm in our hearts, Father, our trust in you and your sovereignty and your power and wisdom. Let them remind us of the importance of the sacrifice of your son, of the sufficiency of his work, of the permanence of his blood in saving us from our sin and in the uniqueness of that sacrifice that nothing else could or ever will equal it in its power to save. And I thank you, Father, for that reminder tonight. May we be meditating on that in every day of our walk as we work to remove the sin of our life with your power to the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.